Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of the 4K Podcast. This week's topic, we're going to talk about the headache of plan notices. One of those topics that uh, we all know about. Uh, most uh, plan sponsors I've seen don't really follow the requirements and whatnot, and some of the headaches that ensue. But of course, first things first, that 401k conference uh, information, go to that 401ksite.com. Uh, National Virtual Conference, $2.23 to be a part of it. Two days uh, in January. I think it's January 26th and 27th. Um, and uh, we're going to have a conference in Detroit in May. And we're looking to finally book the date for Arlington, Texas. And we are in negotiation with Oakland. Uh, we'll probably have a date in November. they got a weird thing going in Oakland. As an aside, you deal with one company on game days, you deal with another company on non-game days. Let's just say the non-game day people uh, are probably expensive, so hopefully the uh, Oakland A's will be uh, a little bit more um, reasonable when it comes to uh, space rental. Uh, And probably look to Milwaukee and then try to do something back to New York Hopefully, uh, in 2023, go to that 4 com for further information on all the events. Uh, we're adding uh, speakers to the National Virtual Conference, um, uh, a few uh, content 151, uh, save and retire. So it's, uh, some, you know, quite a few companies out there. Every week we're adding somebody. So it'll be an interesting mix, some returning speakers from the last couple of virtual conferences and then some new ones. So uh, we're, we're looking for, you know, some interesting speakers, people that you can't get. Um, I have a running joke uh, where you, with a lot of these national conferences, it's the same five to ten speakers. They're at every single event. So trying something new, bring in some different voices and whatnot. So hopefully uh, you could be a part of that. And, of course, uh, again, that 41ksite.com for further information. So when it comes to plan notices, I think that that's one area that plan sponsors really neglect. And I think that's one, plan, uh, one area where plan providers neglect. And I don't think the Department of Labor looks too kindly on folks that um, – you know, don't provide the correct notices uh, and timely. And uh, I just had a situation um, with a former participant in the plan that I work in. Uh, he was the CFO of one of the adopting employers of this PEP. You know, and he claims he didn't get, you know, the required blackout notices, which we, we know that he did. And, of course, being a former participant, that creates a headache uh, in dealing because, you know, give me $3,000 or I'll go to the DOL type of arrangement. Uh, that that kind of a problem, but I think that uh, plan sponsors, you know, I always say that if you want to look for problems in retirement plans, you can always find them. Uh, and I think the one area um, that I think that they're missing in terms of compliance is the plan notices area. Uh, I, I just know it from my experiences as a plan participant, from the experiences um, with my wife as as a plan participant, uh, how you know, garbled and uh, misconstrued and how they don't really follow uh, the requirements. And of course, one of my favorite stories of being a plan participant is the first 401k plan that I was at. I was at a law firm plan that was affiliated with the CPA at Long Island, New York. Um, 
that whole year to get in, which was annoying as heck. Finally got in, you know, uh, I think it was hired September 98. Finally could, finally could get in January 2000. And for the longest time, uh, it was a balanced forward plan or it was trustee directed, but I, it was gone from balanced forward to trustee directed. And needless to say, the paralegal was getting all of my deferrals. And of course, their response was, well, at least you didn't lose any money because, you know, we didn't switch it off to participant direction. It took months to fix. That doesn't help you when you want to invest as a plan participant. But when an employee becomes a plan participant, um, plan sponsor has to provide several documents, you know, uh, SPD, enrollment package, benefit designation form, salary deferral election form, um, automatic enrollment form, um, which is really the deferral form, but, you know, with the automatic enrollment feature in there, you know, if it, you have an automatic enrollment feature, you got to get employees notice and, you know, uh, you got to give these notices, you know, uh, again, I always joke about my old law firm plan and how they provide me no information whatsoever to make, um, investment decisions on the RISA 404C. You know, those are not required, but an SPD is. A deferral election form, benefit designation form, those are forms that you have to give to plan participants from the outset. Next, on a participant directed 401k plan, a participant's individual benefit statement, it's got to come out quarterly. Um, it needs to identify the participant's account balance, vested amount, and the costs associated with the administration of the plan. No ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, thanks to the fee disclosure regulations 2012, we know that the um, requirements are not only that the plan sponsor receive uh, uh, disclosures, but the plan participant does as well. Next, notice of distribution, the lump sum is eligible for rollover. Um, people have the op should have the opportunity to roll over their uh, distribution, the whole required notice and election period. Um, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a whole process, uh, of giving people enough time and ample opportunity to decide what they want to do with their benefit. And one of the requirements is, is if they have $5,000 or more or $1,000 or more, they could keep the money in the plan, which of course, if I was a former employee, I wouldn't want to keep my money in with my former employer's plan because there was a reason I left that former employer for a reason. Um, I wouldn't want my money uh, soiled with their 401k plan. And again, most of the plans that I worked, uh, that I participated in were a mess. And that includes, you know, a couple that were affiliated with uh, third-party administration firms. And again, um, these are required notices. Um, and again, the headache, of course, is, is that plan participants want to keep the money in the plan and they're above the involuntary cash out uh, threshold. They can do that. That's their right. Um, in, in addition, um, missing participants is a huge issue for the Department of Labor. So I think it's important for a plan sponsor to identify any bounce back mail or email and whatnot, which we'll talk about e-disclosure. Um, another required notice is when the plan is amended, the summary uh, material modification. What's interesting about it is when I draft a plan amendment, I have an SMM, tell them to give it immediately, but the rules require that it's 
doesn't have to be provided no later than 210 days after the close of the plan year for which the modification was adopted. That's that's weird. Uh, that's doesn't you know this. Yeah, to me, this is no different than the uh, the fifteenth day of the first month after for salad deferrals when the Department of Labor had that rule. It just didn't make any sense that you have a rule that takes so long time. Uh, you know, gives the plaintiffs officers so much time to to furnish the materials. And um, again, uh, it's required. You know, you, you amend the plan, uh, which amends the SPD, and SMM is required. Uh, Notice when the end of the year, plan year has passed, the SAR, the summary annual report, which you know kind of explains the administrative expenses incurred by the plan, number of benefits paid to employees, plan asset total, uh, minimum funding standards and whatnot, and the right to receive a copy of the full annual report. It's got to be provided later uh, nine months after the end of the plan year, two months after Form 5500 due. Um, that's a mess. Uh, because I think a lot of plan sponsors just don't provide it. Um, I, it's just, I, I'm surprised it's one of the, you know, holy grail of required notices. And I'll be surprised that uh, people are uh, doing it. I see quite a few that don't. Um, notice for Safe Harbor Match plans since 1999. Safe Harbor 401k plans required a notice. Um, it's got to be 30 days before the beginning of the plan year. Uh, that's changed for profit sharing plans, the 3% non-elective. Uh, you could even, you give a notice during the year, 3%. You could even give a notice after the year is over. And I don't, I don't believe that the notice is required. Uh, just because it's not tied to salad deferrals. That's why the matching contribution is a safe harbor match. It's far more difficult to stop. It's far more difficult to add. And it has that required notice because a matching contribution is contingent contingent and condition on employee making deferrals. And if you're going to change it, or you're going to add it, uh, change it, or cut back, you have to give employees the notice. Hey, by the way, if you you were deferring just to get this match, well, you should know that this match is going bye-bye. And uh, the Safe Harbor notice, when we first had it, it was very, uh, very short, very sweet and to the point. And then there was a change where they required the plan to talk about vesting and a whole bunch of other plan provisions, uh, the salad deferral provision and whatnot, the withdrawals, you know, 59 and a half and all that stuff. And quite honestly, uh, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge problem because a lot of plan sponsors forget about the 30 day notice. Uh, and, uh, that's a problem. Uh, you know, quite honestly, I think an IRS audit, they're not gonna. They're just gonna ask for a copy of the notice, whether it was handed out or not. And uh, quite a few plan sponsors, I'm sure, are still not handing them out as they are required. And uh, it's 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 a mess. And um, you know, it's again, I, I don't know if a DOL will ever disallow a safe harbor match where there is no notice. But um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, it is problematic. Um, notice of a blackout period. Um, this was a good change. I want to say this change came about, I forget the time. It was probably around 2002 or whatever, but the conversion process was a huge deal where it would take months and you wouldn't know when or when you could go back to, 
directing your own investment. I believe it was Sarbanes-Oxley that required the safe har uh, the blackout notice. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was a, I want to say, a 2002 law that came into play after the whole Enron disaster. And, uh, of course, uh, unfortunately, Arthur Anderson went down with it. Uh, huge accounting failure and whatnot. Just huge um, stock manipulation and whatnot. And um, there was a requirement that a blackout notice where you have three days or more of restricting a participant from directing their own investment, it's got to be furnished to the plan participant. Again, I had that situation with this uh, former employee. They got to receive a blackout notice at least 30 days, but not more than 60 days in advance of any blackout. So if you want to talk about a blackout six months from now, uh, that's a stale notice. It can't be uh, less than 30, no more than 60. And, uh, you know, uh, there are situations where they're prevented from putting out the notice, but it's got to be done as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that you could have any good standing on uh, furnishing a notice like a day or two in advance of a blackout. And again, I think now more than ever, it's a big deal when you have such a volatile stock market. And again, I had this former plan participant. He was a CFO, of one of the adopting employers, left on really bad terms. Uh, and, uh, you know, listen, former participants are a bigger headache than, than current employees because, again, current employees aren't as vindictive when it comes to plan sponsors or, or lack of concern and they're just more passive aggressive than anything else they complain about their employer but when it come, push comes to shove and acting they get you know cold feet so these are problems um you know the blackout notice has to contain information on the expected beginning and end date of the blackout each participant has to you know again get that 30 to 60 day notice and um you know, the explanation of a reasonable amount of what they think is going to be the uh, blackout, um, you know, a guesstimate or whatnot uh, has to be included. And uh, next, uh, it, it can be done electronically. It was interesting that, you know, um, I think I got my first email account at work and I want to say 99 and it was funny until 2020, the Department of Labor did not allow for uh, e-disclosure. Everything had to be done through the mail, especially to former employees. Uh, Department of Labor for a while was trying to go to an e-disclosure format. The paper companies were very, very much against it. I'm sure if the U.S. Postal Service had their say, they'd be against it too. But... You know, we were going that route, and I, I think that that is a great benefit to avoid the mail and the garbage and the bounce back of emails and whatnot, a bounce back of mail. Um, I'm well for e-disclosure, but to take advantage of it, the plan sponsor has to notify uh, plan participants by mail that some or all plan documents will occur electronically, that they have the right to request and receive paper copies uh, or opt out of e-disclosure and the procedure for exercising that those rights. So without that initial, hey, by the way, we're going to go to an e-disclosure format, uh, you have a problem. I mean, if you look at it, it's no different than when the banks say, you know, you want uh, e-statements and you have that right where you could say, no, you know, I still want you to kill some trees and put it in the mail where I'm just going to ignore it. 
Um, the problem with email disclosure, I think that with plan sponsors, uh, they're probably not aware of it, is if the email backs, you know, email bounces back for one reason or another, especially with former employees, um, there has to be some sort of system where you know which emails bounce back and to follow up by mail. Um, it's always interesting sometimes when it gets bounced back. I remember uh, there was a, um, I got a bounce back. I, I reached out to a former partner of, uh, well, a current partner of a former law firm that I was at, this guy who was supposed to be well known for, for uh, networking. And uh, I get a bounce back email message and I send it back and I finally read the bounce back email message and the codes and all that stuff and deciphered it and realized he blocked me. Don't think I don't take I, I don't take these things personally. Uh, I haven't seen them in about four years. I saw them at the bagel store about four years ago because we still live in the same village. Kind of awkward, but you know I remember then bragging to him about uh, how uh, you know was doing an event in Cleveland and um, you know alluding to the fact that I knew that his law firm was about fifty percent smaller than when I left, but. Once an email bounces back for whatever reason, if a participant blocked you or uh, email is no good anymore, uh, it's got to be fixed by sending the notice to a secondary email address on file or, um, you know, or by mail. We treat these employees as if they've opted out and therefore we go back to square one. So, you know, e-disclosure is a great way of, uh, getting rid of the madness of uh, mail and all that kind of stuff. So I like it, but plan sponsors and, and plan providers have to follow up and make sure that these notices, if they do bounce back, that they got to be sent back out. Um, and, you know, sent back out either through a secondary email address or usually by mail. I never include a secondary email at all uh, in anything I do. I, I don't know. I just, I just don't. Last but not least, as it pertains to all these notice requirements, I think that plan sponsors forget that participants, former employees, who I, I use the term former participants, but participants who are former employees of the plan sponsor are the have the same rights as current employees. Um, I think plan sponsors don't realize that, but that's the fact, Jack. Um, and there is, you know, a requirement for them to get the notices as if they were still working for you. And I think it's important for plan sponsors to track former employees, make sure their emails don't bounce, but also follow up on involuntary cash outs, anything below the limit, send it out and open up an IRA if it bounces back and they're under the limit. If they're above the limit, follow up with them. Kindly ask them to take the money out of, well, don't ask them to take the money out of the plan, but remind them that they have the right to take the money out of the plan and be done with. Because again, from my experience in dealing with Department of Labor investigations, most of the time, most of the time DOL investigations I had were as a result of a plan participant complaint. And a plan participant complaint usually comes from somebody who's got nothing else to lose. And that's somebody who's a former employee. Very rarely you see a class action lawsuit by a current employee, um, you know, very rarely do you see a DOL complaints by a current employee. It's just, it's not in their nature. Uh, but former employees have an axe to grind. 
uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, and whether their information is true or not. So that former CFO who left on bad terms with his adopted employer, he wants us to give him $3,000 for notices he got. Um, and it, uh, it's interesting on that case, which I've talked about the last few weeks, uh, the plan providers answered him pretty swiftly uh, that, uh, you know, there's nothing there. They, 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 they screwed, you know, he, he, he did get the notices and there's nothing they could do for him. And uh, as, you know, the PPP, um, he could file an ERISA claim with me, which he has not done as we speak. And we'll see that if he does. Uh, again, um, I call those type of cases where they complain and they want a couple bucks just to go away. It's like a smash and grab. Um, it's only an issue uh, if the plan sponsor really did do something wrong uh, in terms of, uh, you know, following notices of the plan and whatnot. And uh, uh, give a shout out to my friends at Plan Notices. They're a company that uh, works with plan sponsors and sending out notices and taking care of the, that situation. So uh, I think they'll be speaking at that 401k National Virtual Conference. I'll probably have to confirm that later. Uh, they have something interesting that gives plan sponsors the opportunity to uh, navigate and follow uh, that maze, what we call the notice requirement. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of that 401k podcast. Uh, we will return next week with another fun-filled episode. Uh, I don't know when we'll record it. We've got Yom Kippur next week, which not a lot of fun. 25 hours of no food and no drink. Uh, I hate those days, but... It is life. But um, until then, hope you tune in next week. Take care. Bye.